Hello, and welcome to History Reconsidered, a podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into historical issues and events and relating them to the modern world. I'm your host, Jared Stepman. I'm joined by my co-host, Sumatra Mitra. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the origins of the Civil War. And Sumatra, I really wanted to have this episode because this is a a topic that's really been in the news for a while. It's been something that's been discussed a a great deal, of course, in the last few years. Uh, Something that kind of brought this to my mind was a, a question that was asked to Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley when she was asked about the origins of the Civil War. She didn't give a very good question. She said something like, oh, the freedom, it's the freedoms of what people couldn't couldn't do. And of course, she was reamed for this answer by many people, of course, yelling over and over that is simply about slavery and that the answer is that simple. Um, but I think that, that the answer, the question itself was very much ideologically loaded. And I think it was actually a question that was unfair and requires uh, more discussion than simply yelling slavery over and over again, which as we'll, we'll certainly discuss, was the prime driver of the war, but um, there's a great deal more to it uh, than simply that issue. And I think, unfortunately, because of the ideological debates of the time of everything being uh, devolved into racism versus anti-racism, slavery versus anti-slavery, it, it doesn't give a full and fair account of the war. And so I think this is a very important topic because there are a lot of people, I think, that simply don't know a lot about the the origin of the Civil War if they a lot of modern Americans don't even know what uh, century it was in, unfortunately. But it, I think it is an important topic to delve into. What do you think, Sandra? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is something which we have, before we even started this podcast, we kind of like talked between ourselves about how fundamentally, number one, if you have to understand how historical analysis happens, the best way to do that is to look at a pivotal war in human history. Um, because causality of a war is how they show you like what kind of, you know, what kind of analytical points you're planning to go about. So First World War, for example, has got different origins, you know, as we discussed in our episode. Uh, Second World War is even more complicated. Um, So, but people are still thinking about how those wars started and who were like the, the sides who were like directly responsible. And in some cases, in our own countries, people think that Churchill was equal to Hitler. So, you know, it, it, it's it, with time, the ideas behind the wars and the situation obviously changes and it's difficult to, uh, there are different colors that put some different layers on top of an event. So I think civil war, which as you rightly mentioned, is probably one of the most interesting, little bit of baffling um, and de- definitely one of the most devastating conflicts that happened. Like it was the first modernized war in the history of humanity. It was probably the most devastating war per count of people who died in the US. It was fratricidal. And obviously it it ended with reconciliation, which is, again, fraying uh, with the passage of time. So I think that's very important to talk about. I would like to tell you so that you can lay out the groundwork about like what, in your opinion, would you think as, one, the, the, the primary division in in the United States between the two set of elites, which which led to this conflict. So I think that's a good way to start. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of going back to the origins, and this really is, this is an epic in American history, E-P-O-C-H. It's, it's really, there's kind of a bookend starting with the, of course, the American Revolution that begins in, uh, in earnest in 1776, the Declaration of Independence and ends at 1865 with a republic that at that point was 
dramatically changed, was a dramatically different country uh, than the one that, that existed in 1776. The, the origins of the war come from, I think, a lot of the foundational contradictions at the heart of the American Revolution, that there was an institution of slavery that existed under the American system that was committed to the idea uh, of freedom and the idea of equality from the, the, the very Declaration of Independence written by uh, Thomas Jefferson, a man who has been, of course, in our modern times, much criticized for the fact that he did own slaves, but yet wrote a document in the Declaration of Independence that I would say of, uh, of all documents in human history, I think, you know, maybe you could point to the Bible and the Declaration of Independence as those that uh, ultimately led to the downfall of slavery, not just in the United States, but around the globe. This was a, a movement that really stemmed at the heart of the American founding, uh, which became a contentious issue very quickly in the history of the Republic. Even in the, the days in which the, the the revolutionaries, the American revolutionaries were fighting for independence, the slavery issue was already becoming one uh, that was much discussed. I mean, during the war, uh, there were there were movements for, for emancipation because many wondered, well, if we're fighting for our own freedom, uh, shouldn't shouldn't that be freedom for, for all, so to speak? And this was a highly contentious issue, especially when you consider that large some parts of the American economy were dedicated to the institution of slavery. There's no question about that. And so as the nation formed, especially after uh, the American Revolution, it became a highly contentious debate uh, at the Constitutional Convention, uh, where it became a, a serious issue that many saw the cleavages that were between the so-called slave interests and the maybe free interests became became acute. But uh, what's important to understand is in the early days of the Republic, there wasn't the kind of division that we saw later at the time of the Civil War, where the idea of slavery was generally universally denounced, even though there was an, an acceptance that it existed. It was in a practical sense, people understood that uh, Slavery simply existed uh, in the American colonies, that it was a, it was intertwined uh, with with the economic power of especially states like South Carolina that were very prominent uh, in being a leading force in the American Revolution, uh, that this was that this was sort of something that it was a, it was a necessary evil in the early days of the public, one that m most hoped would eventually be extinguished. I think that there is unfortunately a lot of misinformation about the slavery, the nature of slavery in the early times of the Republic, especially during the American Revolution. This came up during the, the debates over the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones, who said essentially that the American Revolution was a fight for slavery, uh, that essentially it was uh, the, 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 the British and the Crown, the Parliament, that were essentially at, at some kind of uh, the early day abolitionists, that they wanted to get rid of slavery because they emancipated some slaves in the American colonies. But I would say, unfortunately, that's that's a that's a false notion because the actual emancipation efforts that took place under the British in the Americas were, of course, a wartime measure. They were simply meant to uh, release people to cause chaos for the for the American colonists. Before the Revolution, uh, manumission was actually very difficult under, under the British Crown. It's unfortunately it's very sad for those those uh, slaves who were released under the British. Many ended up simply brought along and re-enslaved in the Caribbean. Some made their way to, to London and unfortunately became uh, reduced to begging, had a very difficult time when they were taken to London. So the idea that uh, the American colonies were fighting on behalf of slavery against uh, emancipationists is simply, 
it's simply incorrect history. It's, it's simply not the case. Now, of course, the British Empire did become very anti-slavery at a later date. Uh, that is unquestionable. In fact, I would say is was a linchpin in the destruction of slavery uh, in not only their own colonies, but globally. But the idea that it was a, that it was the American colonies that were fighting on behalf of slavery, it's just plain wrong. Uh, and, and you can see it through the emancipation efforts that were taking place in the early days. Uh, and, and you can see it certainly, certainly much later. So uh, I think that definitely needs to be something that's 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 put to rest. I know, of course, you know, you may defend the, the British Empire and their their kind of uh, pro, uh, anti-slavery methods, but at that point, it wasn't something that was so common throughout the empire. No, I actually, uh, I actually agree with you. I, I do think um, <clears throat> of all the people to, that I found uh, to be an interesting kind of way to be a monarchist, I never really expected Nicole Hannah Jones to be one. So that's that was something. Which I, <laughs> <laughs> accidental monarchist is like one of my best. <laughs> that should be that should be a new book title that should be a new book title like i mean i i know i know there are like twitter followers like an american monarchist in virginia who follows me like i don't know who that person is if you're listening to this podcast i'm really grateful it's kind of it you know the roots of the old country runs deep but um (laughs) but but to go back to your original point i absolutely actually agree with you i do think some of the ways um where look there, there's no question both can be true like we it, it's a cliche that people say like oh yeah you know both can be true um it both can actually be true that britain and the royal navy uh was instrumental in uh in their anti-slavery missions in the 19th century by the way not in the 18th century, definitely not, you know, before the American Revolution. In the 19th century, they were instrumental. But also, at that point of time, uh, having slavery was problematic for uh, the moral righteousness that British Empire wanted to portray itself. So it was, and and uh, if you read that book, you know, by historians, uh, I'm forgetting the name, um, it, it said how much, like, what percentage of GDP uh, was used in slavery. But to go back to your original point, you're right. Manumission was difficult before the American Revolution, and you, to your original point, Jefferson's, uh, you know, the idea of the Declaration of Independence that all men being equal is a fundamentally a very Protestant idea. And yes, there were issues uh, of the time about you know which which might show like you know how uh, the, the the preaching of the concept is not equal to the practicing of the concept. But that being said. Without the the fundamental idea that all men are equal under law, even like in hundred years' time, slavery wouldn't have been abolished. You know that was the groundwork, uh, the foundation of of anti-slavery movement. Jefferson understood that one can be morally uh, against slavery while having to have the compromise that's needed to maintain the United States on the first place itself. The fact that states came together to form the United States was an act of compromise, which wouldn't have happened without uh, maintaining, at least in partial ways, the institution of slavery. And and also, uh, they were like very worried about how, what would happen if, like, suddenly there is a complete emancipation of you know of you of human beings. Like, what would they do? What kind of food would they have? What kind of jobs would they have? You are you 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 mentioned something about the uh, the early anti-slavery movements. I want you to talk more about the more about them for our readers. Yeah, not to not to, to harp on Nicole Hannah Jones again, but she actually had a, a tweet recently that was, she said essentially that Haiti was the first uh, nation, which of course ha- Haiti <laughs> had its own 
uh, slave rebellion that led to the eventual extinction of slavery. She said that essentially they were the first to uh, ban slavery, which is not actually true. In fact, uh, when this, the, the Haitian rebellion went from about 1790 to 18, roughly 1804, a number of American colonies and then states had already banned slavery. For instance, Vermont actually had a ban uh, in 1777, Pennsylvania had one uh, in 1780. In fact, even in places like Georgia, not exactly uh, known for being anti-slavery, of course, it was part of the southern states that eventually did. There were emancipation movements within Georgia. So this was already something that was that was building. In fact, I would say that a lot of the emancipation efforts globally really began as an outpouring of what happened during the American Revolution. Uh, I, I think that that is simple reality. Now, what did it become complicated in the United States under the Constitution? Yes. Uh, many compromises were made that ultimately led this to being, uh, as one statesman put it, the irrepressible conflict uh, in the United States. But the idea that, A, that the United States invented slavery, which unfortunately is becoming common in some circles, and B, was somehow never particularly committed to emancipation in any circles that it was all just a scam. It's just not true. It's just, it's just, it's just wildly false. And even for instance, some of the discussions about the original constitution, the discussions about the so-called three-fifths clause, unfortunately have been uh, badly butchered in American debates. This idea that, and people say that the three-fifths clause in the constitution, which defines representation as three-fifths of a slave, of course, the constitution never mentions uh, the, uh, slavery. Um, it's based on saying that it's three-fifths of a human being. What it really was was simply a compromise by uh, more pro-slavery to more anti- uh, uh, between pro, more pro-slavery and more anti-slavery interests in the sense that if you allow full representation of the slaves and the states are represented by population, uh, that simply increases the power of the slave states. And if you don't have any, of course, that weakens the power of the slave states. So this was a compromise between state, states that were more reliant on slavery and those that were not at that time uh, to ensure that the, a constitution could even come to fruition. But without those kind of compromises, there would, there, would be no, there would be no America as we know it. It simply would not exist. And it was very clear, when you, especially when you read the constitution, that those who wrote that were insistent on both keeping slavery as a concept out of the original documents and placing some seeds for what they hoped would be its eventual destruction, including the abolition of the slave trade by 1808, which was a, a necessary part of the Constitution. There were many who hoped, including James Madison, the father of our country, or excuse me, the father of the Constitution, uh, that eventually that slavery would, would die out without a, a, an influx of slaves coming from Africa at that time, that eventually it would simply burn itself out. And, and from the perspective of somebody in the 18th century, that might have seemed very logical. Unfortunately, what happened is in the 19th century, certain economic innovations made slavery much more viable uh, than it had been so previously, including the cotton gin, which exploded the, the, the cotton business, which led to the, 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 the so-called king cotton, the, the slave, uh, excuse me, the cotton business becoming overwhelmingly potent uh, in, in Southern states and creating that massive division. But that wasn't present uh, in the 18th century. The, the, that was still long in the future. And so when the discussions that were mostly happening at the time of the Constitutional Convention were how can we set in place a country that protected the rule of law and protected freedom and ultimately led to what they hoped would be the end 
of slavery as an institution in the United States. And I think that, that those, those notions ultimately allowed America to come through this entire epoch uh, as ultimately a free country. I think that the, emancip the pure emancipationist impulse, while I think looking backward is very satisfying, the, that, that doesn't ultimately solve many of the other issues with building a country and, and a free republic. I'll unfortunately have to point to Haiti once again, a Haiti, a country that was built as a rebellion against slavery, it was essentially a slave rebellion that took place uh, in the 1790s. They were, were slaves in Haiti threw off their French masters, uh, led by a, a very famed uh, a black general named uh, Toussaint L'Overture, uh, which was quite successful in overthrowing their masters, was far less successful in actually creating a long-term system of, of self-government, of a system that would actually protect uh, the rights of citizens, would create a functional government. Uh, unfortunately, of, of the, the fathers of the Haitian Revolution, most died uh, violently, whereas the fathers of the American Revolution died quietly in their beds, surrounded by family members. And that's, I think that's something to understand about this issue, is that it's very easy to go through history and, and to project what you hope is right and wrong. But it's oftentimes much more complicated, and and sometimes it's it doesn't give you the convenient choice. You would hope that, of course, looking back, that slavery was abolished right away. I think most people, uh, Americans today, would have hoped that slavery was instant, instantly abolished as soon as the country came into being. But that wasn't the reality. They knew it couldn't be the reality. They simply did what I think statesmen do, which is they try to uh, create the best understanding that the world is not a perfect place, that, that human nature uh, isn't perfect. Uh, but nevertheless, we're statesmen built something that would ultimately last and ultimately lead to better ends and that that system would bend towards justice. And I think that that is that is ultimately what they did, even if there was many years of debate, discussions and uh, contention and ultimately, unfortunately, a war that broke out in 1861. I think those are some very interesting points that you mentioned. It's an absolute curse, in my opinion, is to to see people uh, judge history on the basis of their presentist idea you know you know it, it's it's one thing to think of what morality looks like in the current state and then impose that morality 200 years or 300 years before us and try and decide whether they were good people or bad people it's a very simple thing to do most people are simpletons so they kind of like like that you know <laughs> this this idea like you can just portray everything in black and white and you know there is no gray no nuance uh, in, in, in history. And the second thing which you, which you mentioned is like what, what caught my opinion about, uh, about that, this, this idea is, um, when people notify about what happened in Haiti and, you know, how the things turned out, it, it's almost like two different worldviews of how revolutions are done. Like the American revolution followed the the anglo you know glorious revolution and the and you know and the common law and and the idea that right to property and speech would still be like you know when the americans were fighting their revolution they wanted to fight because they thought england at that point of time has deviated from the path of of common law and anglo ideas um whereas the french revolutionary side which is far more utopian uh, and that school of revolution is what usually happened where you just fuck you know you 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 cancel and you chop the head of someone first, and then you decide how to how, how to have to move forward with that. So I think that's interesting. But I also want to take you back to your point. You mentioned the South, and you mentioned uh, 
the paranoia because of of Haitian you know revolution. How does that how does that shape itself in the American psyche at that point of time? Very much. I think this is kind of an underrated thing. Unfortunately, I don't like to keep harping on on poor Haiti uh, here, but uh, Haiti, especially when it did have its revolution that took place uh, in 1791, ended around 1803-1804, ended up very violent. You had a a a basically the slaves in that part of the island overthrew their French masters, ended up with a, a great deal of bloodshed, ended up with what is oftentimes described as the first genocide in the New World, where the black slaves actually went out and straight up murdered uh, the whites that existed in Haiti and, and men, women, and children. It, it came. It, it's part of the reason why Haiti became a bit of a basket case, because other countries uh, were afraid of even doing business with Haiti because they're afraid that their citizens would get butchered as soon as they stepped foot on the country's soil. Uh, I think another interesting note about this is that the man who led that revolution, actually a very, uh, in many ways, brilliant man, Toussaint L'Overture, who was himself uh, enslaved in Africa, was the, the son of actually a, a, an African aristocrat, believe it or not. Um, at the end of this revolution, even though he himself had been enslaved, re-implemented a system that was, for for the most part, uh, slavery. I mean, uh, uh, that's it's hard to define it otherwise. He actually forced those uh, who had been emancipated back onto plantations, oftentimes with their former masters, uh, and and basically said that anybody who, who didn't want this would be uh, treated with the same punishment as if one was deserting in the military. So he create, recreated a, a, an institution that in some ways wasn't a whole lot different uh, from the slavery that went before. So again, going to the, the complication sometimes of history that even a, a movement that one would assume is anti-slavery ends up being something very different, uh, isn't really a free system at all. I think that was the case. But this entire revolution produced an enormous amount of paranoia throughout the Caribbean, throughout especially the the, the southern U.S. states, especially ones like South Carolina, where you had a, a slave population that matched or in some cases even surpassed uh, the local free population, the local white population. And so uh, the idea that, and this happened just before the the cutting off of the importations of slave for, from Africa, there was a lot of fear uh, in Southern states that any notion of uh, emancipation would actually lead to faster rebellion, would lead to the murder of citizens. Because in, to, to a large extent, the Haitian Revolution exploded in large part because of both the American Revolution and the French Revolution, because of ideas about emancipation, about the end of slavery. Uh, and so it created, um, I, I would say, more imperiousness on the state, uh, on the part of many Southern statesmen, believing that, like Jefferson said, that they had the wolf by the ears, they dare not let him go. Uh, and there was a lot of fear that by loosening up many restrictions, they were actually going to be the authors of their own destruction, of their own death and that of their families. And I think that in many cases that that was the case. A lot of times the, the the small rebellions that took place didn't happen on the most vicious and brutal plantations. They happened on the ones that would be considered by the, the times to be the most lenient. I think that's a very common thing. Again, you know, one of those complicating aspects of history. So this created a whole lot of fear and belief in a lot of Southerners that uh, notions of emancipation were simply uh, a means by which they themselves uh, would be killed and murdered in their sleep. And that was something that unfortunately drove large part of American politics from just around 1800, but really escalated in the, in the compromises that took place in Congress in 1820, 
1850, where the you really see from about 1820 onwards, this become an escalating conflict, a, a real division uh, that overcomes most others, where other issues simply sink. This issue becomes the dominant one. So that's interesting. That's that's an interesting place to to stop. Where um, um, what you mentioned the the compromises, and I always like whenever I you know read about Civil War history, uh, we talk about you know there was this effort to compromise with the Southern states before outbreak of, of the conflict, um, but we never really talk about the compromises that happened before in the eighteen twenties and eighteen fifties. Like this was, there was almost it felt like two divergent economic ideas and two divergent political ideas and even two you know divergent uh debate about the the what the definition of the republic is was happening between two different type of people um can you can you shed some light on 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 the compromises that happened before the civil war on this question yeah I, and that's actually great and i think it is very important especially when we talk about the ultimate cause of the civil war i think differences in how one views the American nation, the Constitution, what that means, what even is your nation. I mean, there was a lot of division from the time, really, of the, the creation of the Constitution. Uh, I mean, there was a there was a split between anti-Federalists and Federalists, those who wanted a more nationalized system, those who wanted a, a very much more state-based system, who wanted something more in line of a, a league or a confederacy. And this, this really... It, Unfortunately, it, I think in modern times, there's this idea, well, if you're for uh, states' rights, you're for, you're for slavery, you're for racism. But that was not always the case at all. In fact, there were a lot of arguments for those who were uh, radical opponents uh, of slavery that they need to essentially break off and break up. They need to get away from uh, the, the slave power, that the Constitution needs to be ripped in half and burned because it's a pact with the devil, essentially. Now, those, were the, those were the complications and the questions that bedeviled a lot of uh, debates uh, in the times before the actual American Civil War took place. And as far as the compromises go, and the, the, there were a series of compromises, and, and they were really driven by the fact that the United States in its initial crown, uh, founding was 13 colonies on the eastern seaboard. That country spread. It spread to the west. It, it was the Americans were flooding into uh, the western territories, into the, the territories purchased during the Louisiana Purchase by Thomas Jefferson. They were creating new states. And this issue became acute because, of course, the discussion is, is are these states to be slave states or are they to be free states? Initially, uh, statesmen like Thomas Jefferson wanted uh, to essentially ban slavery in all new states. In fact, uh, there was actually a vote that took place in Congress about that. He got angry at one a congressman who didn't show up in time for the vote, and it was narrowly defeated. During Jefferson's own time, during the Articles of Confederation period, there was the Northwest Ordinance, which brought in new states, essentially new territories that would be brought in with slavery prohibited. But of course, many of the, the slave states were upset about the idea that the new states would essentially ban slavery and were worried uh, that an imbalance of power would take place in Congress and in the halls of power in the United States. And were worried that essentially that there would be an aggressive move to, to immediately emancipate all slaves, that if they simply lo if they lost power, that that would simply become a reality. And again, you, you talk about the paranoia that was driven by the Haitian Revolution, the paranoia that's, that's driven by uh, some notable slave rebellions that took place as well, and the fear 
that the country, that the kind of careful balance that took place at the time of the Constitution would become unbalanced. And so you had initially the compromise of 1820, which was very important, highly contentious, uh, that essentially drew a line across the, the future United States, saying that below this line, uh, slavery would still be accepted. Above that line, slavery would be prohibited. Uh, this became, uh, again, this, this, this line actually did, unfortunately, drive a lot of the issues following that, including uh, the Mexican-American War, which became highly contentious, not just because, of course, it was a, a war against Mexico, but because the idea that bringing in parts of Mexico uh, that were south of this line would bring in simply more slave states. And so the, this, the war itself became highly contentious because of this issue. And you really, it is an unfortunate thing because um, you can understand from the perspective of both sides why this is such a contentious issue. Because a lot of the, the debates that are settled in Congress change dramatically when you simply bring in new voters. And that's really what this was. You simply bring in new legislators. I think that that is a, a highly contentious thing in any republic because the, the original Constitution was based on the idea of deliberation, compromise. You would have these various forces uh, that would have to negotiate various issues on behalf of the American people represented in their various states. When you have an issue like bringing people in under vastly different systems that are required for a slave and a free state, you end up with a contention that, look, you can just bring in more states and bring in new voters. And I think you can see why that became such an explosive issue that that ultimately, I think, in many ways, uh, drove the, the tr that was the trigger of the war in the way that the initial division over slavery wasn't because the fear that you would ultimately lose power, either on the, 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 the side that wanted to eliminate slavery or the side that wanted to further it, uh, drove drove the kind of kind of parenting, drove a lot of the contention uh, in later periods. So um, the question that then comes to mind is, was there any attempt to to nullify slavery like completely? And um, if that's the case, like, I mean, you're, you're right. The, the, the classic instinct in America is to either bring new voters or bring new congressmen and, uh, and, and solve an issue. Like even like even modern days, like, you know, when, when people talk about how oh, if, if the Supreme Court is taking a decision on, on someone's behalf, you just need to pack the court and bring more people and, you know, just muddy the water. So obviously that is instinctive um, and that kind of makes sense. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know as to how, where did the, the divergence started between the elites? Um, like what, what, what actually happens? Revolutions and civil wars do not happen uh, unless the elites are divided. The people can be divided all the time, but as long as there is a centralized elite in any country, uh, chances of a, of a civil war is very, very nil. Like, you know, his, history suggests that civil wars happen only when the elites of a country are completely divided on some issue to the point where their existence is in question. So when did, wh what is that point in, in American history? Yeah, absolutely. And your first point, is, if, as far as, you know, the bringing in new voters and whatnot, I, I would say that to a certain extent, you know, comparing it to modern times, this is part why the, the immigration, especially illegal immigration issue is so contentious because it's a promise that, well, there are whole new voters within that system, that whatever voting dynamic you have, you don't have to win by convincing the other side or convincing your fellow citizens. You can simply change the dynamic by throwing in a, a, another force into, into politics. And you can see why that becomes a highly contentious issue 
in a republic? Why simply throwing in new voters and why it ultimately did lead to the, se the severance of the union? Uh, as far as the, 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 the debates that broke out between um, American elites, I think there was an evolution in how slavery was discussed. And of course, it was coming in very much into contact with the Industrial Revolution about a society that was rapidly modernizing and growing. And uh, there was, a, I think, a change in ethos from those who were, you could say, on the more pro-slavery side to where uh, pro-slavery was not simply uh, an, uh, an evil that would be in the abolished in the future, but was the, the rhetoric around it changed to becoming a positive good. And this was a, a phrase that was used by statesmen like John C. Calhoun, a very prominent South Carolina senator who, uh, who had run for president, had been uh, vice president to Andrew Jackson before their falling out. Um, but there was a real change in the mindset of, of many Southern statesmen that uh, slavery was not something that we're just going to deal with. It's something that's a positive good for society. Uh, there was there there were there was actually one uh, Southern thinker. His name was George Fitzhugh, uh, who actually very much studied a lot of ideas, a lot of socialist and communist ideas uh, in Europe that were uh, in vogue at the time, and actually adapted it to the to the Southern system. He had a, a whole system he called warrantyism. He thought that uh, slavery was actually uh, the wave of the future. This was actually a very much a a, a positive good, like Calhoun said. Uh, that slavery was just a, another word for socialism or communism, that it was actually a more functional version in his mind. Uh, and this, of course, brought on the debates that you had. It's a kind of amusing thing. I don't think no, many people know who George Fitzhugh is. He was a very prominent thinker and is actually brought up in the debates that take place between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen, Stephen A. Douglas, because Lincoln brought up in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, George Fitzhugh's arguments that essentially – there are some people who are uh, born to rule and others who are the, the mud sills of society and the, 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 the strong essentially have a right to rule over them. And uh, it's not discerning between the races. And, and Lincoln said, well, you're basically making an argument to enslave other whites. Right. Uh, this, of course, you know, horrified, you know, his audience. And so, but that really was some of the arguments that were coming down during this time. There really wasn't much of an argument against it. If you follow the logic of those like George Fitzhugh and others, uh, you know, what's to say there shouldn't be a, a large uh, enslaved class in a society and in a, in a ruling class. But of course, this goes very much against the, the philosophy that comes down from Jefferson and the founders, the idea that uh, human beings, while not equal in, in their, uh, in their abilities and their talents are equal in, in, in moral value, that they can make moral assertions uh, from an equal uh, playing field, essentially. And that that is, I think, really at the, the heart of it, the idea of equality that was at the beginning of the American Republic, one that by the mid-19th century uh, was fading away and becoming a, a contentious issue suddenly. That was really what was driving that elite debate. Uh, and, and the debates that Abraham Lincoln, of course, I think sort of, you could say, ultimately won his debates with D Douglas. And of course, you could say won in the minds of Americans following the war. But that's the kind of elite, the debate that was happening that was further splitting the country, where on one side you had a stridently pro-slavery side, and on the other side you had those like William Lloyd Garrison uh, who were saying, well, slavery is an abomination, it's a great evil, we should never compromise with it, uh, burn the Constitution, break the country, uh, de destroy this, this nation essentially because we don't want to have any part of the slave system. Um, 
And you can see why, again, this has become such a highly contentious issue. And when you throw that onto that fire, I think an unfortunate event that happens in, in 1854 where you have the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, in part because of the ideas of Stephen A. Douglas, uh, that that throws open those, those old compromises where you had a line essentially different, uh, drawn by Congress to split the slave and the free, it essentially says, well, let the people decide in the, their separate states. Whenever they come to the union, they can just always decide. Um, again, this threw off the entire dynamic because what you had is not some careful deliberation. You had people rushing into these states trying to decide for these states which way they'll go. So it, it created a kind of precursor to the Civil War, which we called Bleeding Kansas, where you essentially had uh, various pro and anti-slavery factions sh uh, duking it out and shooting at each other, uh, trying to take control of the state government, and bring this, the, the state into the union on one side or the other. So you already have an escalation of violence, uh, even before the actual shots were fired at Fort Sumter, leading up to the war as a precursor to what would eventually happen. So I, so this is very interesting. I mean, I think you mentioned the Cousins War, uh, the book Cousins War, a, a couple of a few days back about how you know the the there has been like fundamentally three um, cousin war, so to speak, in 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 U.S. and the U.K. And obviously, uh, you know, it was between the the Puritans and the you know Cavaliers on one side, and you know that instinct kind of like continued when you know you have the Puritans in the northern states and the Anglicans in the southern states. Uh, so the southern states wanted more stability and more, you know, hierarchy and all that kind of stuff. But you mentioned about uh, Fidzu and how uh, his his fundamental idea kind of like was driven by this this communist idea of of having a vanguard of society and then them deciding. It's kind of similar to how progressivism in the early nineteenth century was fundamentally um, non egalitarian. Like they 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 had this idea of, of an elite ruling class. Who would take the more enlightened decisions for the other, from Margaret Sanger to Woodrow Wilson to uh, uh, to anyone on that? Well, that's a very interesting point that you mentioned, Fun, which is one of the reasons why, in every left wing revolution, at the end of the day, what happens is there comes to be a ruling class and it kind of forms like a feudal society. Like in Soviet Union, you had the Politburo and Central Committee, which was deciding, and most of the people were like living in in poverty. Um, I would want to bring back to you mentioned the Lincoln Douglas debate and the and the bleeding cancers but so Lincoln was elected right I mean at, the, at that point of time it was already the, the the direction of the country was already between on one hand people who believe in the early original idea of federalism about states are being completely independent entities without any kind of national identity they identify with their states first. We're going to discuss that when we when we talk about Robert E. Lee anyway. Mm -hmm. Like he 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 identified as, as someone from Virginia more than as an American. And uh, and even when you talk to Southerners these days, like I, when I was in New Zealand, and my flatmate was from Kentucky, and if you ask him where he was from, he, he would say I'm from Kentucky rather than I'm from the United States. You know, it, it's it's fascinating to to just uh, think about those those ideas, but. What happened when Lincoln was uh, elected? Like, what, 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 what led to that to this final straw? Like, this final, you know, dumping of fuel in the fire. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting because Lincoln is a product of a newly forged Republican party that began in 1854, that same year that the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed. The Whig Party decreases in prominence because it simply 
cannot be, it refuses to be essentially the party of anti-slavery. And, and the Republican Party essentially gathers former Democrats, former Whigs into a party that, while I would not call an abolitionist party, there was no major party that was outright demanding immediate abolition, but simply was committed to the idea that slavery was bad and that it should be limited. And that was the ultimate argument of Abraham Lincoln. But on the Democrat side of the spectrum in those days, the argument that Douglas was making, which is, well, just let the people decide, wasn't good enough for most uh, of, of the kind of fire-eating radicals on the Southern side. They wanted uh, an aggressive defense of slavery. They wanted to say, no, slavery is a positive good. So it's, it fractured the Democrat Party. And in fact, it fractured. There were actually many parties that sort of splintered off from that uh, during that time. There was a Unionist Party. There were, the Democrat Party was, was split in half. Uh, there, so there was no real consensus, and Lincoln was able to sort of step into the breach of the Republican Party that uh, had before it struggled to actually win a national election. I, I, it's, it's, uh, it's an argument, I think, fortunately in favor of the Electoral College, because Abraham Lincoln did not really have, a, a, a in, in the pure sense, a majority of the American people on his side. And if had that election gone down to the, the, the really, there were really four candidates, maybe three serious candidates, he may not have won that election. It, it, the, the Electoral College essentially allowed uh, Lincoln to secure the election uh, without question. But the way that the Southern side had, especially the fire eaters, their intellectual kind of currents had taken them, they couldn't accept any uh, president or any le uh, national majority to come to power that was committed to even the long-term uh, abolition of slavery. And I, I think that that is what triggered a series of states to start seceding and saying that we are no longer part of this union. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, this, this triggers, and, and many states were not wholly on board of this. I mean, this started, of course, with states like South Carolina, where you had a, a, a large number of those who, who, who wanted to secede. Uh, but you had a lot of trepidation for many of the other states that were really on the, on the fence, including the state of Virginia, which didn't start to actually move to secession until Lincoln began calling up troops, essentially. And, and that's, again, this is, this, this comes, you know, we talk about the later complications of, you know, where one's loyalty is. Um, a, a lot of states, they weren't necessarily, a lot of leaders were not for necessarily secession, but because of various decisions, they were almost pushed into it and, and saw it as inevitable and saw that they had to go with their states. I mean, one of those states and was actually a man who became uh, the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander uh, Stevens, Alexander Hamilton Stevens. I think it's kind of amusing, um, who infamously uh, had this uh, speech that declared that that they were going to have essentially slavery as a positive good. He was nevertheless not a fan of the idea of secession. He was very much opposed. Uh, he had been a longtime Whig. He had been a friend of Abraham Lincoln. He was very much opposed to the fire eaters that that brought the end of the American Union. But of course, Georgia left the Union and he went uh, with his state. He tried to create a, a new America, a new Southern nation, so to speak, uh, out of the, the states that had seceded. And so you have a combination of factors. You have some men who decide to secede because they're going to go with their state. You have some who think that they're going to create a new Southern nation and dissolve the states. There's actually some of those arguments at these conventions. So you have a lot of people going this way and that. And of course, on the northern side, you have people who are, in some cases, very much committed to the to the anti-slavery cause, and many others who don't care about the anti-slavery cause. They are simply angry 
uh, seeing their 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 brethren in the South uh, say that they secede from the Union, breaking up the Union that they all thought uh, would, would last forever, that was based on firm constitutional principles. And seeing that happen uh, caused many to be thrown even more into the pro-Unionist side and more to the pro-Lincoln side because they saw what was happening uh, to their nation. So as Lincoln is coming to the White House, you have a President James Buchanan who essentially uh, was a bit out to lunch, deciding that he wasn't going to do anything one way or another. He neither believed in secession nor would he do anything to stop it. You have Lincoln now coming into the White House with practically half the country uh, deciding that it's it's going to leave. It's going to leave the country. Uh, it's going to break the, the Union forever, uh, you know, leading up to that confrontation that all eventually goes down at Fort Sumter. So uh, the South, you, you, it's interesting that you mentioned that there, there was this gentleman from Georgia who was opposed to secession, but also like, you know, like was in favor of state rights. I mean, that's very similar to what you know, the books I've been reading by Robert E. Lee, like when he said, like, you know, he's individually opposed to the institution of slavery. He doesn't think like he's a, he's a classical Anglo gentleman from Virginia, like with, with a surname that goes back centuries and with a pedigree of marrying into George Washington's family you know it's 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 so he he's he's opposed to this idea that people are not equal he's opposed to the institution of slavery but on the other hand when he was you're right you know when Lincoln started to draw out drop troops and Lee was given the charge of of leading the country and he was like how can I draw my sword against Virginia and how can I fire on my own state and and that's just fascinating so so you mentioned Lincoln coming to power Half of the country is already at that point of time decided, you know, frightening situation. People don't know what's going to happen. Most people are like, you know what, they're, they're kind of like, you know, having a cold civil war in the modern terms um, already. So what what led to the fire firing of the Fort Sumter? Yeah. So on the first comment you made, you know, about the, the how the, the loyalty to states and how complicated and confusing uh this was uh, there was one story. It was actually quite amusing. Where one officer uh, from Maryland read uh, what ultimately turned out to be a fake news report that uh, Maryland had seceded from the Union. He resigned his commission uh, and thought he would be joining the Confederate Army. Then learned that the news report was wrong and actually went back and said, well, "No, no, I'd like to take back my commission, rejoin the, the American military because my state clearly I, this was fake news." Uh, and you and you had other strange decisions, especially. In a lot of the Western states where there wasn't much loyalty one way or another, and, and some actually decided to join the Confederate Army because they thought it would give them better advancement in their careers. He says, well, this is a new army. I'm a, I'm a lower, I'm a junior officer. I could actually advance higher if I just joined the Confederate Army. So you had a lot of complicated decisions uh, throughout the country where you had families that were divided. You had people who weren't sure where their loyalty should be. There were people who didn't, who absolutely liked the Lees felt that they were uh, connected to their own state, that that was truly their nation, that they owed it their allegiance, that they thought that that was the honorable and the right and just thing to do was to be go to your state, no matter, you know, if it was in the correct or not, this is still your ultimately your country is how they would see it. Um, and as far as the, the so the, the second point, and then the question you asked me as far as the, the kind of lead up to eventual shots fired, uh, uh, and the, the, the launch of the Civil War, of course, all came down to the issue of Fort Sumter and, and a lot of the military bases that it still existed that were technically uh, federal property that a lot of the southern states said, well, now this is ours now. 
And, and this was actually, again, it's a, it's a highly contentious issue. And it was something that drove a lot of Northerners to extreme anger. The idea that, well, we as American taxpayers, essentially, that's this is how people thought of this. We pay for those forts. We paid for this, these, these, all these forts, and you can't, you can't take that away. This is, this is federal property. This was built as, we, as we as a nation built these, 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 these forts. We've built things like Fort Sumter. This, these military was created for us as a nation. And so, when Fort Sumter, uh, out in, in South Carolina Harbor, uh, you had a commander who essentially decided that uh, he was not going to surrender to the to the Confederate and and, and South Carolina authorities that he was essentially going to going to stand his ground uh, at his base. And you had a, a really a, a difficult decision uh, on the Lincoln administration's behalf, whereas do you continue to supply the base despite the fact that there are now guns being pointed at it, despite the fact that uh, the state says that it's a seed from the union that has separated all uh, connection to the former United States. Uh, and Lincoln had a very difficult decision. There were some who thought that, well, it's simply lost. There's no retrieving it. And others uh, who pushed him. In fact, there was one, uh, a newspaper man who's very close to Andrew Jackson, another famous, you know, sort of nationalist who stood with the Union when those who sort of wanted to break it up, uh, came to Lincoln and said, you have to defend Fort Sumter. If, if you don't defend Fort Sumter and bring in supplies, then you know, you failed in your oath to the Constitution. You have failed as a president of the United States to defend and uphold the Constitution and this union. And so ultimately, uh, Lincoln did make uh, attempts to to reinforce the fort. There were some were were were, were uh, fired at and, and driven away. But ultimately, um, it was South Carolina and the Confederate government that decided to fire the first shots on Fort Sumter, which. I think in the long run was actually a colossal mistake uh, from the Confederate and the Southern side, because um, there's a very interesting account. One of the uh, Confederate cabinet members actually said, and sort of a precursor, maybe you could say is, you know, how Americans view the attack uh, on Pearl Harbor in World War II, um, actually went to, to Davis and his other cabinet members saying, who were basically congratulating themselves on a successful taking of Fort Sumter saying, you know, you don't understand the, the, the hornet's nest you've stirred up uh, on behalf of the Northern States, that they're going to see this as a betrayal. They're going to see this as an, an attack. And you've now unified Northern opinion. Whereas before we could, we could say that the Northern States were the aggressors, the federal government was the aggressor. We no longer can rely on that, that idea. Now we seem to be the aggressors. And that will be taken very badly so that many of our potential friends who sympathize with us and sympathize with the idea that we are simply like the American revolutionaries declaring our independence. Now we're seen uh, as the violators of that. And I think that that did drive a lot of the opinion and actually bolstered Lincoln's argument. And so a lot of the you know early uh, uh, efforts to, of course, recruit into the to the budding uh, Union military successful because of that that argument that you know they attacked us that we're trying to save the union uh join the union army and, and save america from from this from this attack from the destruction of the constitution and so it really galvanized both sides and at that point uh the, the battle lines were drawn that the country was now in a state of civil war you had a a president who was very much committed to saving the union first uh which was the most important thing that was the thing that lincoln was committed to uh, 
with slavery kind of being an issue that, of course, sparked it, but not being the number one as the as the war starts. It being it's kind of pushed as a, almost a side issue. And it, it's understandable. I mean, it, you know, if you think about it, if slavery continue, if, if you simply allow that the nation to be broken up, you now have simply slavery in one half and an anti-slavery force on the other half. Does that mean that slavery has come to the end? Well, no, it actually just means you have one half now completely committed to slavery and the other not. And it, it I think, pretends future conflicts between those two new nations. And so Lincoln and like many, like I, I, the great statement statesman, I think he ultimately was, understood that A, that the United States had to have a unified destiny in the new world. Um, and B, that even if one cares about the, the issue of slavery, it has to happen under a unified union or else this, this problem will continue to bedevil North America long into the future. Fascinating. I mean, I, of course, Newton, Lincoln is considered to be a, a paradoxical character. It, on, on one hand, like, you know, he was a Republican. On the other hand, he was the guy who um, canceled habeas corpus. On one hand, he was this, this, this you know, emancipator of, of uh, hundreds and thousands of people. But on the other hand, he was also sort of like a, a an uber nationalist reactionary that who wants to like use force to keep the country together. So it's, it's, like every gray and historic character in in in, in human history, like it, there are you know debates about his his idea. I wanted to ask two very short questions before uh, uh, before we move on to the next episode. Um, there were lots of Indian territories, for example, um, which didn't decide on which side it's going to join. You mentioned this uh, junior army officers coming to to the Confederate side and joining. But there were uh, states and territories on the on the west and the Dakotas, for example, like which were not really sure of which side they wanted to jump. Eventually, um, once the shots were fired, they fell on the side of the Union, and that bolstered a huge, you know, um, uh, manpower boost and production boost uh, on, on the side. It's kind of like having a weird parallel, not just with Pearl Harbor, but also what's happening in in the Ukraine Russia war. Um, that on one hand, you know, you have this small country which was extremely successful in the first days of the war but eventually when when the war of attrition started and when more manpower and technology started pouring in uh material forces are are, are the deciding factor but also um the 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 idea that people from my state or, or some other state can just fight you know fire at union property which essentially was built by the entire country is is a deciding factor in the in the consolidation of northern war effort. Like it, it, it trapped people in the spiral that from where they couldn't get out of. Like at that point of time, it was already decided destiny. Um, we would touch on a couple of things before I think it's good to move on. So obviously, the big, you know, character arcs of of this story are Lincoln, Grant, Robert Lee, Jefferson Davis, uh, Stonewall Jackson, uh, McClellan, uh, General McClellan on the north. How, when, was there any effort of compromise? Um, even like, because the emancipation letter was what happened only in 1862, from what I remember. Like that was almost after the war started and went on for a year and a half, right? So, Clearly, that was not the most pressing concern in the mind of Abraham Lincoln. Like, that is not the first act of his presidency that he wanted to do. He wanted to, as you mentioned, keep the union together and use force. 
my question was my my something that I always ponder was that was there any effort, last moment effort, to keep the institution of slavery, to have some sort of compromise about state rights? Or was that was there any chance of avoiding this conflict? Just before the war, there was there was attempts to create an amendment to essentially create a kind of permanent uh, institution of slavery that was ultimately re- rejected. And and I, there was some there was again some, there were there were there were attempts to sort of bury this question forever again with those hopes that on one side that it would eventually die as the uh, the world economy began to change as the industrial revolution began to take hold and as the the country spread uh, itself uh, throughout the West where I think many hoped that slavery would not be a, a common institution. Unfortunately, it turned out it was. Um, by the time that the Civil War happens, there's very little, uh, I think, willingness to, to compromise on either side. And maybe you could say that's, again, one of the things maybe that ultimately allowed the war to happen is that compromise became sort of impossible. And from the perspective of those, you could say, who had more of the, the ethos of a John C. Calhoun, that uh, that slavery was uh, a positive good and you, in the side of Lincoln, where you see you think it's inherently bad, it, it is hard to ha- come up with a compromise. The, the, the issue that separates you is so uh, uh, existential in many ways, because a slave versus a purely free system has a very different system of laws that are set up to support it. I mean, this was something that is why it became so contentious under the, they had a, under the 1850 compromise, they had something called the, the Fugitive Slave Act, which uh, they thought was a, a lynch. It really was a lynchment to the compromise because many of the slaves who would essentially run away from uh, the plantations in the South would run to the North uh, Southerners were angered by this. They said, well, you're, you're basically you know, robbing me of my, my property. I'm poor because of this, and I demand retribution. They demanded that those states actually uphold their own laws. And, and, and this is a highly contentious issue because people had, who, had, who wanted no, nothing to do with the institution of slavery were suddenly thrown into a legal system where it was just a reality, where they had to deal with it, where they had to deal with these complications. And it, again, because you threw open the West to this, this larger kind of battle, um, it was very difficult to get around this issue. It was simply touched, you know, every part of the law, every part of how the country functioned. And so people who, in many other ways, agreed on religion, they agreed on generally how they viewed the government, or they generally agreed on uh, American foreign policy, you could say all kinds of issues, they become split because of this one issue, because it creates these, these reverberations as far as how they view the law, how they view society. And so to a certain extent, it became very difficult uh, to hold together a, a united union, especially with, the, with the, the way the Western states have been thrown open uh, after the Kansas-Nebraska Act and how it really became a free-for-all that made compromise difficult to almost entirely untenable. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated way of looking at a complex problem where, like you mentioned, like even questions which wouldn't really come to anyone's mind because obviously we are living in in, in 2024 with our morality, which is very different from what it was. But at that point of time, it was a question of right to property, which is one of the fundamentals of Anglo-American common law. Um, 
But this is fascinating. What book would you... Uh, I think this is a good place now that the shots have been fired on Fort Sumter um, to stop this episode and uh, wait for the next one to decide on the on the actual civil war. But what book would you uh, would you recommend uh, on 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 this on this issue? There are so many good ones. If if you as far as an actual a, a biography of Abraham Lincoln, because I kind of finished this with Lincoln. There's actually a very good one called Abraham Lincoln: A Biography, written by a British author named Lord Charnwood, that I think is just absolutely excellent. Just wonderful writing really kind of uh, highlights from a British perspective, interestingly enough, uh, the the kind of statesmanship of Abraham Lincoln, I think was just an excellent book. There's a more recent book called uh, Faithful Lightning by Alan Gelzo that's uh, that I think is an excellent book and kind of the issues that kind of began the war and uh, the lead up to the war and eventually its its conclusion. I know one that, or I should say three, that I think we both very much appreciate is the Civil War by Shelby Foote, which I think is uh, a masterpiece uh, that uh, Shelby Foote being the historian that became prominent uh, during the Ken Burns documentary in the 90s. But I think he actually kind of outshone the, the entire documentary. I think he was wonderful. Um, books are very much well worth reading, even if they're quite long. It's a three part series that really gets into the battles of the war. I'm sure you probably have a similar suggestion. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, I, I was going to say Shelby Foote. I mean, like, you're right. I mean, that's pretty much what, um, for this episode at least, that's something which we absolutely have to mention. It's a, it's a three-war, uh, three-book uh, <laughs> three set um, written between 58 to 1974. Uh, it, it's, it's a huge, huge uh, effort of, of history. I'd also like to mention for this episode especially, we're obviously going to talk more about the Civil War battles in the next one, um, uh, by something which you and I, again, would agree. It's by Harry Jaffa, uh, The New Birth of Freedom, Abraham Lincoln and the Coming of the Civil War. Um, that starts, you know, the uh, it, it charts the, the the path towards the war in a, in a way that might be controversial for some people, but but obviously is something to be to be to be written. Yeah, uh, his his two parts for for Jaffa, and certainly there there are many who disagree very strongly with Jaffa had. It's it's new birth of freedom, which is is kind of the the Lincoln versus Calhoun debate, and then crisis the house divided, which is his first yes. book, which is of the which is the Lincoln Douglas debates that are really it's probably the it is the greatest book written on the Lincoln Douglas debates. I don't think there there wasn't actually a whole lot of attention put on the Lincoln Douglas debates uh, until Jaffa, Jaffa yeah. wrote that yeah. book. So I entirely agree with you about Jaffa. A little controversial, maybe in some circles, but yeah. Uh, books that are well worth reading and and pondering over for sure yep um so i think that's going to bring it to a close on this episode we really wanted to split this into two episodes because in this we're really talking about the origins of the civil war which is just such an enormous topic and i even in this hour i don't think we really we really covered everything that that needs so to go into to this about. Uh, yep. There's a lot more to topic. And the next episode, we're going to deal with more of the consequences of the Civil War, both the reality of the, the fighting and what it did to a nation which suddenly lost hundreds of thousands of young men in the most terrible war in American history, uh, but also the kind of the, the kind of international and policy consequences. How are the North and South planning to win this war? How did the world see the American Civil War. These are all very important issues that certainly consumed American statesmen and statesmen in, in Europe at the time, seeing the great American Republic uh, torn asunder, maybe to go away forever. 
I, I think there were many at the time who thought that this truly was it for the United States, that there was no way for it to recover. We'll talk about how it, it came through that crisis, what ultimately allowed the United States to have the, the, the American century in, in the 20th century. So all the uh, topics that we'll save for, uh, for next, week's, uh, next week's episode of History Reconsidered. Thank you.